Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. All right, guys, you know what time it is. It's time for a little stress relief, a little sleep support, recovery, you know, maybe even a little mood booster. I'm just saying. I need them all. Right? Like, these are the things that, like, we just, I I don't know how we would, like, get through the day without, like, just little details, you know, just some things. And you know what has also become such a thing is obviously having incredible skin. Like, I feel like more than ever, like, we have all sort of made this pivot to be like, ah, skincare. Like, Mm -hmm. logic, but you know. And as you guys may know, we do have a great solution. We have our favorite clean Climate positive, family farmed, carbon neutral, and responsibly sourced company to solve all of these things, and that is Prima. They are in Sephora. Forbes even called them the Patagonia of CBD. Like they've been praised by the New York Times, Fortune Mag, and so many more. Of course, us, which like maybe you know we're in that list, obviously. Definitely. Right? Like, obviously, you're like New York Times, Girl on the Gov, the podcast. And then you're also like, what connects them? And you're like, ah, Prima. So Prima has amazing doctor-formulated, clinically validated, high-performance products for the skin, body, and mind. Like Prima's the daily CBD capsules, which is my favorite, by the way, to help relieve daily stress and keep you focused. Yeah. I literally... I took... Prima in four different forms today. <laughs> Basically a living, breathing version of Prima. Yeah, like actually because, I mean, I have expressed plenty of times by now that Night Magic, the night oil by Prima is my favorite. Vogue even said that they have been swearing by Night Magic. So it's some good stuff, okay? But there's also huge news because there's a new product Prima mm-hmm. has just released and I am obsessed. I doused my body in it today. <laughs> and it is their new body oil, which is a stress relief oil, but it's also just gives you like the perfect summer glow. Like I can't even tell you. You can mix it with your favorite lotion by itself. Or what I've been doing is getting out of the shower and I don't fully dry myself off and you put the oil on when you're so a little wet and it like soaks right into your skin. All right, Sam? Pro tip. But no, I've been just glowing ever since I got that package. Everyone, everyone that pro tip. You take that and you tell everyone. So, you guys, lucky for us, 
Prima is offering our listeners an exclusive limited time 15% off offer with the code GIRLGOV. So head to Prima.co and you know the drill. You're going to feel better. You're going to look glowy every day. Like a glazed donut. Period. (laughs) (laughs) Alrighty, you guys. We are back. I know everyone missed us so dearly because... We had our first bye week, like, ever. We have yet to take a break, okay, on a Wednesday for an episode. But we're back. Last, la- not last week even, but the week before, we had two episodes released, our special episode with Miss Opal Lee for Juneteenth. If you haven't listened, you guys, I'm not even kidding. It's, like, an actual must-listen. She is incredible and just really rang in Juneteenth for us all. And if you don't know much about Juneteenth, you got to. So go listen to that episode. But this week, we're back with another incredible episode, especially in light of Pride Month. And we are just here with another incredible guest. Like, literally incredible doesn't even begin to cover it because I've never learned so much, but also laughed so much all at the same time. Like, you guys are going to absolutely love our guest. And that guest is Casey Pick. She is a senior fellow for advocacy and government affairs at the Trevor Project, So we're going to not only get into her career, what she's done, how she's gotten there, but of course, all the amazing work that the Trevor Project has done in the past and is working on right now, including legislation that they're trying to push on behalf of the LGBTQA community. So without further ado, did we get into it? Let's get into it. So here's Casey. So my name is Casey Pick, Uh, my pronouns are she and her, and I am the Senior Fellow for Advocacy and Government Affairs at the Trevor Project. So the Trevor Project is the world's largest provider of suicide prevention and crisis intervention services for LGBTQ young people. And I got here way back in the day, I was a, you know, very young, barely out of the closet lesbian who was just scared and trying to figure things out. And I reacted to that the way I did anything else that frightened me back in the day. I tried to research it into submission. Mm. Uh, Spoiler alert for this entire conversation, I'm a little bit of a nerd. (laughs) So I was just kind of obsessed at learning everything I could uh, about history of LGBTQ people, politics, laws, religion, science, biology, all of it. And by the time I got to college, I had this wealth of knowledge in my head. And one of my classmates, who was much more uh, activistly inclined and politically inclined, decided that I had too much knowledge in my head and I needed to get in the game. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. So she pulled me into some of our meetings, first with like school administration and others. And I really discovered then that I had a passion for figuring out which bit of all of this knowledge, which story would be the thing that could really reach a person. Yeah. Uh, Anybody who was anti-LGBT, I kind of started seeing as a lock and being like, where's the key? I love that. And then I just kind of fell in love with that kind of advocacy and that kind of way of seeking uh, policy change. Went to law school, specifically chose UCLA because it had a focus on LGBT legal issues and then kind of built a career around it. I've been involved in 
uh, the marriage equality ballot campaigns. I remember my last year of law school, I was volunteering 20 hours a week trying to fight Proposition 8 in California. Mm -hmm. I've also campaigned in Maine twice, North Carolina, New York, and then also really started a career in Washington, D.C., um, fighting against the military's don't ask, don't tell policy. Yeah. And starting there, but continuing onward, built kind of a specialization in talking about these issues to uh, people of faith, conservatives and Republicans, kind of the most interesting locks I could find for yeah. trying to figure out how to tell those stories. And then about three years ago, I was uh, wrapping up a project that was focused on uh, non-discrimination. So everything in the Civil Rights Act, employment, housing, public accommodations. And as I was kind of saying back then, I was getting a little bit tired of having to obsess with uh, bathrooms and bakeries, which was kind of where the movement really was <laughs> yes. at that time. Yep, totally. And then there was this opportunity to uh, move into a position at the Trevor Project where I could keep the focus on LGBTQ issues, but also expand into thinking a lot about mental health mm -hmm. and access to healthcare generally in this country. Yeah and also really directly focus on that same thing that had motivated me all along, which was the thought of the lonely LGBTQ kid mm -hmm. in Kansas or Iowa uh, who just needed some, to know that somebody was fighting for them. Yeah. And so Trevor lets me really very directly be serving that youth in a way I'd never been able to in my previous career. That's... And so now here I am. That's so okay, amazing. I have a comment and a question. So one comment is I love the picking the lock scenario, just in general, but also because your last name is Pick. <laughs> you got like, it. That could not be more perfect. I love that. Like, I don't know how you want to brand that and get that trademarked, but like, it needs to be, it needs to be going somewhere because I'm obsessed. Mm -hmm. So that's <laughs> my comment. Yes. My question though, is of course a little bit more about the Trevor project. Can you give us a little bit of background of how it got started, how you specifically ended up there? Um, you know, what does your work look like on a day-to-day -day for the Trevor Project? Sure, so Trevor has been around for more than 20 years. Um, how it got started, actually about 20 years ago, there was an award-winning short film. It was a coming-of-age story about a 13-year-old gay boy um, who contemplates suicide. And when they wanted to uh, broadcast the film, it occurred to somebody that, you know, it might be a really good idea to also provide resources so that anybody who saw the film, who found themselves in a similar situation, um, would have somewhere to call. Mm -hmm. Problem was, there wasn't anywhere specifically for um, queer youth to call in a moment of crisis. So about 21 years or so ago, they founded the Trevor Project, and the phones haven't stopped ringing since. Um, since then, we've also added 24-7 um, uh, text and chat services to account for, you know, young people today, um, many of them prefer those services. Uh, we've gone 24-7 with the telephone lifeline, and we've, in addition to our crisis services, uh, which serve hundreds of thousands of youth um, every year. We also have Trevor Space, which is a safe space social networking site where youth can 
connect with each other. Mm -hmm. um, you know, sharing everything from their thoughts on maybe they want to experiment with gender neutral pronouns or just sharing TikTok videos that make them yeah. feel good and that they enjoy. Mm -hmm. So we've got that. Uh, we have our education department, which is out in the field talking to youth facing adults, um, teachers, counselors, those sorts of, sorts of folks, um, sharing what we know as Trevor about what, uh, how best to serve LGBTQ youth and how to create affirming and welcoming environments for them. We've got a research team, which does amazing work. Um, for the last three years, we've put out a national LGBTQ mental health survey that surveys upwards of 30,000 LGBTQ youth across the country um, on a wide range of issues about their mental health. Everything from, you know, have you experienced these symptoms of depression or anxiety um, on over to have you been subjected to the practice of conversion therapy or also just some uh, more neutral questions like um, do you play sports uh, what are your uh, various different demographic questions mm -hmm. and one of my favorites which is uh, what makes you feel good about yourself yeah all of which is really valuable information and then last of all um, i'll call out my own department which is our advocacy mm -hmm. team yeah um, as part of Trevor's mission to end LGBTQ youth suicide, our work is focused kind of on the prevention side. We want to change the societal uh, circumstances that contribute to youth being in crisis in the first place. So sometimes that means trying to ban conversion therapy in states across the country. Sometimes that means encouraging school boards to adopt suicide prevention policies that are specifically inclusive of queer youth and their needs. And sometimes that means fighting back against uh, anti-LGBTQ legislation, like these bans we're seeing in states on trans youth getting to play sports or getting access to the healthcare that they need in order to feel like who they are. Yeah. And that's all amazing, first of all. Second, do you mind kind of also share, like shedding some light on your role and like really what that day-to-day -day even looks like? Like, are you meeting with representatives? Like, how does that work get done? So we work on the federal, state, and local level. And sometimes that means testifying to a city's um, city council in, in support of an ordinance, just explaining that uh, for example, again, conversion therapy um, is correlated to twice the rates of suicide attempt uh, for youth who experience it than those who don't. So I can be testifying to uh, a state or a local um, government about the data that our research team collects. Uh, sometimes I'm working on filing amicus briefs. So there are uh, lawsuits across the country that are addressing these various different issues, things like what we uh, recently saw at the Supreme Court. And so I work with pro bono um, law firms to uh, present our evidence in our case there. Sometimes it is about encouraging uh, corporate uh, partners and businesses to get involved, mm -hmm. to speak out and talk about the importance of LGBT inclusion to their employees, their customers, and their families. So anywhere that we can make change and get folks engaged in the political process on behalf of LGBTQ youth mental health, 
that's where I am and that's what I do. That's amazing. And that honestly perfectly segues into our next segment, which is called I Have a Stupid Question. And you had mentioned that national survey on mental health. So according to that, 10% of LGBTQ youth reported undergoing conversion therapy with 78% reporting it occurred when they were under age 18, which insane. But what is conversion therapy? Like, I feel like it gets thrown a lot thrown around a lot, but then a lot of people don't quite know exactly, like, what is that? Sure. And yeah, I made that same mistake here, introducing the concept and didn't explain it. But <laughs> conversion therapy is any attempt uh, to change an individual's sexual orientation or gender identity. So this is an attempt to take a person who is, for example, a lesbian and make her straight, or to take somebody who is non-binary and force them to identify with the sex they were assigned at birth. And this can be done through a variety of different ways, none of which are scientific and none of which work. Uh, but they range from uh, sometimes it'll be religious ministries doing a spin on a 12-step process uh, that involve, or sometimes it'll be a licensed professional, uh, somebody with a professional license as a psychologist or a social worker who will be trying to use those practices with the goal of changing who somebody is. Uh, these are practices that have been condemned by every major medical and mental health organization. Uh, they're deeply damaging as they tend to cause a lot of shame. They'll contribute to depression, anxiety, and increased suicidality. Um, and we hear about these practices from youth who contact the Trevor Project's crisis services. Sometimes they'll contact us saying that they're in conversion therapy, it's not working, and they feel shame and isolation because of that. Um, sometimes they'll call us because they want to come out, but they're afraid that if they do, their parents will send them to conversion therapy, whether they want to or not. So this is something that causes a lot of pain and anxiety and suffering for our community. And the biggest problem is that a lot of folks don't believe it's even still happening. Mm -hmm. So that's part of why having our national survey saying that 10% of today's youth, like those are youth who are between the ages of 13 and 24, yeah. say that they've experienced it. That's something that's really powerful when I'd walk into a lawmaker's office and say, yeah, this is happening. It's happening yeah. in your district and you need to act for your constituents. Totally. Well, that's also the perfect segue to our next question is like, is conversion therapy legal? If so, where? Um, is it a state by state thing? How does that all work? So right now, starting in 2013, we started passing laws in states that prohibited licensed professionals from being able to do conversion therapy on minors. So anybody under the age of 18. And we've been pretty successful at that. We've now passed it in 20 states. And not just the states you would expect, uh, though I am proud to say that we've got the entirety of New England and the entire West Coast, um, other than Alaska. But uh, we've also got states like Illinois, Virginia, and Utah that I'm particularly proud of. Okay, okay. Go figure Utah. Okay, that is Utah. a plot twist. <laughs> <laughs> and that is an entire hour's worth of story that I can tell. <laughs> but the I important sure. part of that is... You know, protecting youth is a nonpartisan issue. Is yeah. that's what the that's the uh, highlight of that story. Mm -hmm. 
we've also got cities and counties in upwards of 90 cities and counties across the country that have implemented their own laws against this practice. That said, we still have 30 states uh, where we should be able to get statewide protections in place. And unfortunately, even in all of these states where only been able to prohibit it for licensed professionals. And we know that probably a little more than half of the conversion therapy happening is being done by unlicensed individuals, usually religious. So that's where uh, it, the laws are very important. I like to say that the law is a teacher and that is a tremendous right. tool for public education. Mm -hmm. But for those unlicensed prov uh, providers, a lot of the change is going to have to happen in hearts and minds and around kitchen tables. Totally. Interesting. Is there anything that can kind of be done? I know like religious freedom gets kind of funky in there, but like, is there any way to sort of infiltrate legally on that end or is it sort of just a no touch zone? Because once you get into the religious end of things, there's no real control of it. It's complicated, but it's not untouchable. Uh, okay. There actually was a case, uh, called Jonah that was about a, one of these religious conversion therapy centers. And they were actually able to be held accountable for engaging in fraud. So they made a promise that they could cause somebody to be changed. They charged a lot of money for it. And despite a lot of abusive practices and a lot of years, no, they were not able to affect some, a change in someone's orientation. Mm -hmm. And the court actually did hold them guilty for fraud, and they wound up being shut down. So this actually can be done, and I do encourage folks to bring claims. Um, it would be a situation where you would probably want to reach out to an organization like the National Center for Lesbian Rights to explore your options there. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Super interesting. I love the loopholes. The loopholes really, you fraud. know, bring it home. It's yeah. Okay. Okay, fraud. Now, mm. okay, I <laughs> hope everyone listening to this is like now like putting this, like writing this down. Here's the strategy. The legal this strategy. This is how we shut it all down. Yes. Here for it. Okay, so that's like the religious end of things, but what about nationally? Like, are there any national laws either on the books preventing or barring conversion therapy? Are there any that are being discussed? Where does that stand? Sure. Uh, nothing has been passed yet, but there are a couple of bills that have been discussed that are very interesting. Uh, the first one uh, was introduced, uh, reintroduced just this week by Congressman Ted Lieu. It's called the Therapeutic Fraud Prevention Act. And you can probably guess this is something similar to what we just discussed in the Jonah case. This is a federal law that would declare conversion therapy, you know, selling it for money to be a form of fraud. So that would be a very exciting bill if that were to pass. Another one is called the Prohibition on Medicaid Funding for Conversion Therapy Act. For once, it's a federal bill that what it says is actually what it does. Uh, okay. This would <laughs> prohibit the flow of federal dollars through the Medicaid payments to pay for conversion therapy. Now, this is interesting in a couple of ways, primarily that in order to get money through Medicaid, you have to code something to explain what, just what ailment you were treating. Mm -hmm. And there is no official code for conversion therapy. Why? Because it's not a real thing. It's not legitimate, it's not medical practice. But we do know that a lot of conversion therapists tend to 
provide conversion therapy and then code it as them treating anxiety or depression, which is totally gaming the system, totally wrong. Totally. So legislation like this uh, really empowers those state Medicaid directors to keep an eye out for this kind of fraud and to really uh, go after and prosecute it as an abuse of the system. Yeah. That's super interesting. Yeah, and like back to again, just like the different loopholes and ways people can get away with this and just Mm -hmm. also like that being a part of the solution is like tackling those different ways and those legal strategies and all that thing, all those things. But moving forward, we want to like get into some legislation, some legal cases that are applicable here and to what you guys do. And to start, um, we want to talk about Fulton versus city of Philadelphia. Do you mind telling us what that case is about? What was at stake and kind of the background there? Absolutely. Uh, This is where I get to really play up that UCLA law degree that I worked so hard to get. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) So the case of City versus uh, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia um, is a situation where you've got the facts of the story itself and then you've got the bigger picture that people were really concerned about. So the nitty gritty facts of this were uh, the City of Philadelphia had a contract with Catholic Charities to help provide and find foster homes for children in need in the city of Philadelphia. And the Catholic Charities uh, wanted to make a statement that sure, they would provide families and they would work with families, except for families that were not consistent with their religious beliefs. And they included LGBTQ families among that. Problem is that the, or the problem for Catholic Charities, not for the rest of us, is that the city of Philadelphia believes in non-discrimination and required as part of their contract that um, all their contractors would abide by the rule of not discriminating based on sexual orientation or gender identity. Catholic Charities sued and we find our ways to the Supreme Court with them arguing that they should be entitled to a religious exemption from the contract based on their First Amendment beliefs. So that's the story of the facts themselves. The bigger story of what a lot of people were concerned about and thinking about was, okay, uh, since the 1990s, when Justice Scalia, nobody's liberal, uh, wrote a case called Smith versus Employment Decision, the rule about religious exemptions to laws has been, so long as a law is neutrally applicable, uh, it means it's neutral, it's not targeting anybody's religion, and it's generally applied, it's a general law. So again, not targeted at religion. Then even if that general law tends to sometimes make it harder for somebody to practice their religion, that doesn't necessarily mean that the law is unconstitutional. So, right. Justice Scalia writes a law, writes an opinion in the 90s saying that a law is constitutional unless it specifically targets your religion in some way, which this non-discrimination requirement in Philadelphia didn't. It was a general law that applies to everybody. But the big question has been for a long time, is that Smith decision going to stand or, are they go, or is the court going to knock that down and require religious exemptions? And so folks were looking at this Fulton case thinking, this might be the case 
where a more conservative Supreme Court decides we're going to carve out a license to discriminate in any law if your religion is burdened. So with all of that table setting done, here's what actually happened. The court took a close look at this and unanimously said, we're not going to touch Smith. We're not going to get into the idea of a broad religious exemption to any law. We think this case can be decided just by looking at this one contract and deciding, was it a neutral law of general applicability? And in looking at the contract, they found that the city of Philadelphia um, had included a provision that said uh, that there could be exceptions to the non-discrimination rule at the discretion of the city commissioner. And as soon oh. as there was the ability for a government officer to make discretions in his own judgment, it ceased in the opinion of the court to be a neutral law anymore. And because of that, the court said, if you're willing to make some exceptions, you have to consider making an exception for Catholic charities. And so in this case, Catholic charities won the small question, but they didn't win the bigger question of declaring an entitlement to a religious exemption. Holy smokes. <laughs> I, guess. I was gonna say, is anybody still awake after that law school lesson? <laughs> Um, I'm shook to the core. No, that was... <laughs> like, actually shook to the core. My ears were peeled the whole time. No, that was super interesting. And I just, I have no words. <laughs> Fantastic. I, yeah, she's just speechless. It's fine. I'm like... Now she's gonna be like... Wait. For like... <laughs> let me think about that the rest of the day. I'm just like, the wheels will be turning. that is so crazy. That is funny, too, because we... Obviously, this is a totally different can of worms, but like as a business, like we write contracts all the time for vendors, for partners, all of that good stuff. And whenever we're pulling those together, you know, there's all those different categories, all those different mm -hmm. segments and parts of those agreements goes to show you have to be so cautious about what you put in there because you might end up in a situation like this where the part where you're trying to be a little bit like lenient or malleable or whatnot actually comes back to totally bite you. Yeah, it's a little bit ironic in a case about religious exemptions, but this definitely proves that the devil is in the details. Oh, yeah. 100%. <laughs> couldn't have said it better. Right? See, those were the words that I was searching for that I couldn't find. So thank you. <laughs> Glad to be of service. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in so many ways. Um, okay, well, let's move forward to some legislation. Um, let's get into the LGBTQ Data Inclusion Act. Can you explain... What is that? What's in the act? What's included? Um, all of that info. Sure. So this is a bill that has just been reintroduced by Representative Grijalva from Arizona today that basically says for any government agency that is doing a survey, that is doing any kind of data collection that includes demographic information. So by that, information about your race, your sex, gender, uh, religion, etc., that any of these data collection instruments should also include sexual orientation and gender identity. So why does that matter? And why do we w even want that today? Because there was a time not so long ago in history where maybe you wouldn't want that information, you'd be afraid of being outed or be concerned about privacy issues, which is something that this legislation takes into account and makes sure that this is all voluntarily given information. But why this matters is this. If there's no data about you, 
there's no evidence, then it's really hard to make policy. And it's yeah. impossible to identify patterns. So for example, at the Trevor Project, we have data from our own research and also from the CDC that tells us that LGBTQ youth are four times as likely to attempt suicide as their straight or cisgender peers. We do not have data on how many youth actually die by suicide each year based on their sexual orientation or gender identity. Uh, we don't have a routine systematic means of collecting that data. And that makes it very hard for us to advocate for programs to specifically yeah. care for our youth, totally. to take them into account, to be required. And there are lots of other areas where having that kind of data would be really valuable. Yes. Uh, like we saw this year with COVID. <laughs> yeah. Where it wasn't until well into the pandemic where we were really getting the data to tell us that disproportionate rates of deaths were affecting communities of color. Right. So we need this kind of data. This yeah. bill ensures that every government agency that is collecting demographic data, just as a matter of routine in the system, includes sexual orientation and gender identity, which will help us build better policy. Totally. It, that's huge. And it's so, so important, too. I mean, yeah, like COVID, but I was also saying like homelessness. Um, we have no type of data on any of that, but it's yet yeah, one of our biggest problems, especially I'm in California. So it's, but there's no way to really find a solution until you get that data. And yeah, like this can be applied to so many different um, issues across the board from healthcare to um, all of this. But can you also explain kind of where this um, act, where the bill is at? Um, do you see it getting passed? Who's in support? Kind of what's the political situation? So uh, this bill, uh, I said it was reintroduced today by uh, Rep. Grialva in the House. It's also sponsored by Senator Tammy Baldwin in the Senate. So always a good sign when you've got a bill in both chambers. Mm -hmm. I would say this is a bill that we've seen introduced a few times in the past. So it's been building support and it may still be in that support building phase. But we also have the advantage now of a supportive administration that wants to see this kind of data collected and supports this policy. So that is something that is quite strong. Um, I can also see this being an issue that is likely to win at least some bipartisan support. Uh, we have seen some progress on um, LGBT inclusive legislation, particularly that which is a little less controversial. Um, last session, for example, we passed uh, the National Suicide Hotline Designation Act uh, which takes the 10-digit suicide lifeline you might be familiar with and designates uh, 988 to be the three-digit version of that, uh, should be being implemented in a, in a couple of years. But that legislation also required uh, training and equipping the lifeline to be LGBT inclusive. So, and the reason I bring that up is because it passed unanimously. So that's evidence to me that, uh, you know, good policy, more, uh, something like this that's fairly neutral. This is just about collecting data and adding categories right. that were already, to surveys we're already doing. I think that's got a decent shot of getting through, even in polarized times like now. Good. Well, we always ring our, um, when we do our top story segment, if there's a bipartisan situation, something actually passes, we have a bipartisan bell. So besides that, obviously, we're in favor. We're hoping to ring the bell, yeah. basically. We, we need to ring the bell. Like, we just, it has to happen just for that. No, yeah. 
I but, hear okay. you. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Right? Ugh. Okay. But also speaking of acts, we've got another one we want to talk about, which t- connects to our conversation earlier, the Mental Health in Schools Act. Can you give us the backstory there? What's, what does that look like? And also sort of how does that connect to the work you're doing? Sure. So uh, anybody who's been keeping an eye on our school systems for the last few decades, particularly their budgets, uh, knows that there's a lot of disparity in this country uh, in terms of what kind of resources are available to our students, um, often based on whether that school is in a wealthy district or a lower income district. And one of the major disparities we see is access to mental health counselors in schools. Uh, This is something that is sorely needed, especially with the uh, just ever climbing rates of mental illness that we're seeing in our young people and suicidality that we're seeing. They spend so much of their time in schools and for so many schools just not to have any kind of mental health support on campus is really a travesty. Mm -hmm. So what this bill would do is that it actually directs the Department of Education to award grants, so money, that thing that those schools need, uh, to educational uh, school districts, et cetera, so that they can encourage um, counselors uh, to come work in rural or lower income uh, school districts. So this is also going to allow for student loan forgiveness and tuition credits uh, for folks who go to work in those areas as counselors. So this is potentially really powerful. Yeah. And we've seen programs like this be successful because we've actually yeah. seen similar programs for teachers. I was going to say, this feels a little familiar to me. I feel like I've heard this incentive program a little, it sounds right. But that yeah. makes a lot of sense in so many ways. And I do think it is really crazy that we don't have these counselors in schools like that. It it really blows my mind. Like it's such, it's an epidemic, it's a crisis. And yet we like don't have anyone there to support. So interesting to sort of see where this goes. What's your take? I know we give you sort of like the pulse on the LGBT data inclusion act, but where do you think this one will go? Like what's your, if you're like, take a guess. So this one is supported by Senator John Tester. Um, It's also got a lot of support from various different organizations, not just Trevor, but like the National Association of School Psychologists and other major mental health organizations, uh, which makes a lot of sense. They see more folks in these schools. Uh, How would this get passed? I'm thinking there's a possibility of a large education omnibus uh, that would pull in many different education priorities. So I think that would be the natural home for this. Hi. I see that too. That feels right. Okay, we're gonna, if this passes, we're gonna have to like have a kumbaya moment and all come together. We ring the bipartisan bell. Yes. We like have a drink. It's gonna be great. Love it. I'm here for it. <laughs> we do have one more segment, and this is called our Fast Five, which is actually a new segment that we're bringing on to have just like a little, like a little banter, a little fun. So basically, what? politics can be fun. That's I, what we're trying to do. We're tra- <laughs> right guys it can it and can be we're having fun so like everyone else has to have fun too but we're gonna start with this question what is your dream political power couple oh, and like man. everyone everyone single like anyone can yeah. be matched with anyone all right i am terrible <laughs> at matchmaking but i will tell you this i would love to see a political power couple of two queer women 
like okay. the political version of Sue Bird and Megan Rapino. Or really, oh, maybe you could just yes. run themselves. I could totally get behind a Bird Rapino ticket. <laughs> Wait, 100%. I played soccer my whole life, so I'm like, yes, let's get, you know, our female mm-hmm. soccer players up in the political game. I am so for that. That is an A-plus answer for sure. I was a basketball player, so that's why Bird's the top of the ticket. Yes, there we go. Perfect. Um, okay, so next we have, if you could pick any elected position to run for, what position would it be? Okay. I know I should say that I want to run for some local government position, uh, city council or school board, where I could move forward Trevor's advocacy initiatives, you know, get suicide prevention yeah. policies in schools. Mm-hmm. Really? I want to be governor of like a small state. I want the power. I want to make the political appointments. <laughs> yes, yes. But still be kind of close to the people. Oh, I love that. I that's love like that. a great balance. Yeah. I'm for wow. that. I feel like that's like an underrated totally. description and, and like element to a governorship. Yeah. Okay. We, hmm. Okay. I like where, I like where your head's at. <laughs> okay. Let's talk political scandals. Oh, if you boy. have to like pick your, like your favorite, like the one that gives you just like the most laughter, what is it? Okay, I warned you that I'm a nerd. So, <laughs> I love it. We're here for it. I keep waiting for Lin-Manuel Miranda to follow up Hamilton with a musical called Adams. Oh. It's all If E. Diggs could reprise his role as Thomas Jefferson, the king would have a blast just being snarky from across the ocean on the first real political... <laughs> and then you can get into Jefferson first hiring a professional scandalmonger, which is a job description, <laughs> to call Adams, quote, a half-mad warmonger who intended to crown himself king. Oh my and then God. the same scandalmonger, when he didn't get paid by Jefferson, outs the whole Sally Hemings story. And then finally, there's, like, this brutal letter from Abigail Adams, who is one of my favorite political figures and the entire reason I went here. She was just ripping Jefferson to shreds. And the ballad, <laughs> based on that letter, would be a Tony winner for sure. Oh my God. You have like, I couldn't have asked for better answers. Like, (laughs) wow. Love that too. Okay, cool. Next, moving through fast, fast five. Um, what is your dream politician celebrity, like mashup slash collab, like that you'd like to see? Ooh, you know, I'm not sure if anything's ever going to match the odd couple collaboration that was George W. Bush in Bono working on <laughs> HIV AIDS. I forgot about that. I mean, oh their work God. together, a big nerd, but their work on PEPFAR literally saved millions of lives. Showed that political so and partisan true. differences don't have to stop people from working together to do great things. So I don't know who's out there willing to be that today, but I want to see more of that. Who's going to be the next Bush and Bono? Like, come on. The Bush and Bono. Like, Come on. Make me a shirt. Make me a shirt. I love that. I totally forgot about that one, too. Okay, bring it back. Love it. Okay, so for our final question, if each branch of government were a movie or a TV character, who would they be? Or what would they be? Oh, boy. And I love being on a podcast where the assumption is everybody knows what the three branches of government are. (laughs) (laughs) We try our best to make sure all our listeners know, but... All right, so executive, I'm feeling optimistic today. Um, I love Madam Secretary's Elizabeth McCord. And on its better days, I think that's what the executive branch strives to be. It's our face abroad. It lifts up our ideals, but it thinks about problem solving. 
I know that's been a hard thing to think about the presidency for the recent <laughs> yeah. memory, but I hope we're yeah. getting back there. <laughs> uh, judicial? Again, this is kind of a good day, bad day situation. On a good day, judicial? Uh, think Marvel Comics. The judiciary is a oh. lot like Captain America. Mm-hmm. Cares about yes. fairness and justice, very much rules-oriented, and a little bit boring. Mm, yes. <laughs> On a bad day, it's a little more like Thanos. <laughs> very judgy. Incredible. <laughs> very judgy, yes. And then legislative. Oh, man. You remember the Senate for the Galactic Republic in Star Wars? The prequels were painful, they were bad, but you do at least get that scene of her like standing in the Senate chamber of this is how democracy dies in the thunderous <laughs> applause. The prequels were painful, but honestly, that was one of the better representations of Congress I've seen. Just lots of different people, lots of different perspectives. Um, some folks trying to do good and a lot of it being gridlocked. So that's me a little bit less cheerful, but there you go. No, Star Wars that... nerdery for the win. I mean, any type of gridlock comparison is on point, so you nailed it. Um, you really nailed all of those. Thank you for being such good sport. Those are incredible answers. I don't even think I could have come up with answers as great as, good. as yeah. those. But that is it. We have wrapped up um, our episode today. But before you go, we want to make sure that everyone who's listening knows like where to find the Trevor Project, how they can get involved. Um, if you want to plug the Trevor Project, social media, everything, we want to know. Absolutely. Please hit up the trevorproject.org. Uh, that's a great place to learn about all of our advocacy activities, to find things like our resource guides. We've got a great guide for coming out for young folks or a guide to being an ally to trans or non-binary youth. And of course, that's where you can find information about our crisis services, including for youth in crisis, getting directly connected into our chat and text services. Uh, same thing, you'll find the Trevor Project on Instagram, on Twitter, on all the social medias. And uh, yeah, we're here for your LGBTQ youth 24-7, 365. So that's where you'll find us. Thank you so much. Amazing. This has been amazing. Um, we really appreciate your time and all of your incredible answers to the fast five, but also all of the information you gave us. And it was just so informative and we really appreciate you and the Trevor project for coming on the show. So thank you again. Absolutely. Looking forward to giving you reasons to ring that bell. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Happy um, top stories of the week. We're here. We made it. And we are opening up our top stories with an interesting one, indeed, because the GOP, aka Republicans, their race for 2024. Can we also talk about, like, I, if you would have told me the number 2024 when I was, like, say, graduating from high school, I would have been like, oh, I would have had five grandkids by then. Literally. You know? Maybe even great grandchildren. No, fully. I would have been like, who? I don't think I'm alive by then, but nice try. But 2024, you guys, that's when the next presidential election is, okay? And the Republicans are already working on who their nominee is going to be to go up against Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. So there's a lot of talk here, and it's some pretty interesting stuff. So in the past week alone, Nikki Haley, regaled activists in Iowa, Mike Pence courted donors in California. Mike Pence, like, 
who is he again? God, I thought I was like done hearing his name. Same. And then this other person that I thought I was done hearing their name, Donald Trump, returned to the rally stage when he was teasing a third campaign for the White House, which is like shocking. Like third campaign, you're really only supposed to do two, mister. But you guys, the midterms are more than a year away. We're not even close to the midterms yet. And there are 1,225 days until the next presidential election. But Republicans are eyeing the White House right now and are wasting zero time jockeying for a strong position in what could emerge as an extremely crowded field of contenders. Do you remember the Republican primary of like before 2016? Like there Mm -hmm. were like 30 people on the debate stage. It was crazy. It was even more than last year. With the, the primary Democrats. It was insane. Crazy. I remember being like, and then they were like, remember at the debate stage, if you guys haven't heard this or haven't seen this, literally go watch on YouTube the Republican debates from, it was probably 20, it was 2016 or even 2015 probably. But they were like actually making fun of each other's dick sizes. Like that's mm. a full fact. It'll be... Nothing but interesting, I'm sure, this time around as well, especially Donald Trump really laid land for what the Republican Party, you know, values and <laughs> all those things. But nevertheless, the politicking will only intensify in the coming weeks, especially in Iowa, which is where the first presidential caucus is. And if you don't know what a caucus is, we will get into that and do a full deep dive on presidential primaries and that whole process because it is long and it is arduous and we will answer all those questions But basically, the GOP is in a moment, I suppose, where they're really trying to see, like, where the party is going and if it is going down the Donald Trump route or if it's going to, like, come back to their traditional values and just dynamics. So GOP Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas is slated to visit on Tuesday, including Mike Pence, South Dakota Governor Christy Noem, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. They're making trips to Iowa, which is, again, that first presidential caucus, the first vote in the primary. So they're literally technically already campaigning for 2024, which is shocking. But... A longtime Republican strategist said it definitely feels early, but it doesn't feel like it's a bad idea based on the situation. The party has changed, the voters are changing, and I think the process has changed. And I think many of the candidates have realized that. So again, it's just right now, this question of whether Republican politics are going to stay in Trumplandia or not. But interesting story here. Did not ever expect really presidential campaigning to start literally the first year after one just finished but i mean well so we we shouldn't expect normalcy ever again no no never again and i think like there usually are people doing the research now trying to figure out you know is a campaign right for them they have exploratory committees but usually it's a little less public than these rallies so i feel like that's kind of an interesting move but are we taking bets on whether the party goes Trumplandia or like goes back to its more like GOP vibes? If I were a, you know, betting man, I would right now say that it would be going down the Trumplandia path because they really have not separated themselves yet from him and his politics, aka literally even just the January 6th insurrection vote. So 
there's just a lot that has not proven that they have, you know, reverted back to any of their normal ways. And it seems like a Trumplandia route is the route to me, but I'm staying hopeful with my fingers crossed. I agree. I wish I didn't agree, but I do agree. Right now, the trends don't point well, but here we are. Okay, well, we've got another top story. And, like, we're kind of close to ringing the bipartisan bell on this one. Like, it's not it's not quite it's there. possible. Right? Like, there's, there's some hope in our future. And so this is about none other than Biden's infrastructure deal. So good old President Joe Biden announced on Thursday a hard-earned, and let's emphasize hard-earned, bipartisan agreement on a pared-down infrastructure plan that would make a start on his top legislative priority and validate his efforts to reach across the political aisle. Bill's price tag is a cool $973 billion over five years or $1.2 trillion over eight years. This is still a scaled back but significant piece of Biden's broader proposals. The investment includes $109 billion on roads and highways, yes please, and $15 billion on electrical vehicle infrastructure and transit systems as part of a $312 billion in transportation spending moment. There's a $65 billion commitment toward broadband and expenditures on drinking water systems, as well as $47 billion in resiliency efforts to tackle climate change. So a lot, a lot packed in there. All right. Rather than Biden's proposed corporate tax hike, the Republicans oppose, or the gas tax increase that the president rejected, some money will come from the $125 billion in COVID relief funds approved in 2020, but not yet spent, interesting, as well as untapped unemployment insurance funds that Democrats have been hesitant to poach. I wonder why, dot, dot, dot. Other revenue is expected by going harder after tax cheats by beefing up the IRS enforcement, which is said to be able to potentially yield $100 billion. I mean, if you're asking me if Amazon just paid taxes, we could really be somewhere, but... Well, it's because those corporations are right in Mitch McConnell's ear, whispering... They are also in his pockets. Speaking of which, just a reminder to go check out OpenSecrets.org. They have great behind-the-scenes details on who funds who and what and all that stuff. You'll find some very interesting things, including, actually, this is a good little moment, Toyota, who funded a bunch of Republicans recently, including those that were not in favor of putting together a committee to investigate the January 6th insurrection. So you're curious, just check that out. Toyota had an interesting and poorly crafted PR rebuttal. So um, that's my comment there. But moving back to this infrastructure situation, as we're talking about Mitch McConnell, it complained that Biden was caving to Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's plan to hold the bipartisan agreement hostage for the president's bigger package of what he called wasteful spending. There is plenty of skepticism on Biden's own left flank about this entire situation, this entire package. Democratic uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut said the bipartisan agreement is way too small and actually said that it's pathetic. I need a clear ironclad assurance that there will be a really adequate, robust package, is what he said. Which, like, okay... The senators from both parties stressed that the deal will create jobs for the economy and rebuild the nation's standing on the global stage, a belief that clearly transcended the partisan interest and created a framework for the deal, which is interesting to know is infrastructure usually is a bipartisan issue. President Joe Biden will look to sell voters on the economic benefits of the infrastructure package while Wisconsin on 
Tuesday, aka today when we're recording this, hoping to boost the bipartisan agreement that is held together in large part by the promise of millions of new jobs and like held together loosely, like very loosely. Um, well, like new jobs and infrastructure, like I feel like that's the Republicans' love language. You would think. You would think. For our last story, the For the People Act, there is an update. So last week, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and 49 other Senate Republicans used the filibuster to block any debate um, on the For the People Act. Our 800-page mega bill intended to combat dark money, we love it, voter suppression, we love it, gerrymandering, we also love it, and other ills plaguing American democracy that we just, you know, this this bill we stand, we've made it very clear. But McConnell and the crew, you know, his crew. <laughs> Classic crew. So McConnell and crew denied any opportunity to offer compromises on the floor and doomed the bill to, to defeat, even though all 50 Senate Democrats voted in favor of the motion. So again, just like the crazy concept of the filibuster, how the minority can literally just kill a bill through the filibuster when half of the Senate is very adamant about a bill. So again, just the filibuster, we we don't stand. But House and Senate Democrats are undeterred. So this is kind of the update on what's happening here because I think a lot of people probably saw this news, was were bummed, but you know, there's still kind of a game plan here to pass some democratic reform and voting reform. So they insist that last Tuesday's vote was the first step in a larger strategy. So Rep. John Sarbanes said, we had to explore whether there's any potential for bipartisan support for this kind of critical legislation. And he actually introduced the House version of the For the People Act. And he said, we learned yesterday that it's just not there. The lines have been drawn very clearly at this point. So bipartisan support wasn't there. But they kind of had to use this as a test to see if there was any type of budging. There wasn't. But basically, For the People Act 2.0 is kind of in the midst right now. So minutes after Republicans filibustered the For the People Act, Senator Amy Klobuchar announced that the Senate Rules Committee, which she chairs, would soon hold a series of hearings on the urgent need to pass critical voting campaign finance and ethics reforms so lawmakers and aides say these new hearings will be used to gather evidence that will go toward writing an updated compromise version of the for the people act and the weeks ahead the biden white house is also expected to take a more proactive role in pushing for new voting rights legislation biden said that the fight for voting rights is far from over And he actually has tasked Madam Vice President Kamala Harris with spearheading the administration's effort to pass new voting restrictions. So Democrats have given up on trying to win over Republicans and instead have focused on writing a quote-unquote compromise bill that is actually going to be paired with changes to the Senate's filibuster rules and would hopefully give the For the People Act a path to passage. Okay, so this little senior congressional aide says outright abolishing the filibuster is out of the question. Like, nothing's out of the question. 2020 happened, people. Jesus. But there are several (laughs) options (laughs) for more modest reforms under discussion in Congress. The first is enacting reforms that moderate Democratic senators have supported in the past, like Manchin, for instance, has supported proposed rule changes in previous Senate sessions that have lowered the threshold to 50 votes for a motion to proceed to debate, and that would force senators to take the floor and speak in order to sustain a filibuster, which would make 
filibusters far more laborious for those doing the filibustering and thus in theory a less attractive option. Interesting. Interesting. Another filibuster change with some support in the Democratic caucus would force the minority party to have at least 41 members physically present on the Senate floor to sustain a filibuster. Also, the fact that's not a thing already. It is crazy. I mean, the filibuster, like, rules. Like, like blase, random AF rules of, like, procedure are, like, coming up this often. Like, it is bananas. It is genuinely bananas, like... I honestly, like, we should start making a game. Honestly, guys, you should start doing this, too. Like, this is going to be, like, how you hydrate. Every time you hear the word filibuster, take a sip of water. There you go. Or, Mm -hmm. honestly, if you do have a glass of wine and you are of age, maybe you take a sip of that instead. Because, Lord knows, when we talk about the filibuster, (laughs) that's kind of the, the beverage we need. It's not untrue. It's Mm -hmm. not untrue at all. It's actually on point. And so anyways, wine and water aside, the W's, the final and most dramatic change would be to create a carve-out in the existing Senate rules so that issues related to voting and election could pass the Senate on a simple majority vote. Interesting as well. Like, creative. Okay. We love a good loophole, and <laughs> if there's anything we've learned from this episode is we talk about loopholes quite a bit. Loopholes so, are a political strategy that help us are. sometimes. Fantastical little moments, most of the time. Other times questionable. It's really a make-your-own-situation buffet. But regardless, that's our top stories, but we do have some housekeeping, and... Uh, that is about our Patreon, which is launching VVV soon, so in the next two weeks. So keep an eye out for the links to subscribe. And one of the things that you are going to find as a part of your subscription is access to the Fast Five. So you notice in this episode that we did a Fast Five with Casey. Teaser. Little teaser, yeah, just to give you guys the idea. Like, was it hilarious? Was it fun? Yes. Did you probably love it? I'm going to just like go out on a limb and say yes. So if you want more access to these sort of more personal, exclusive Fast Fives, behind the scenes content, our Patreon is going to be where you go, where you see the good stuff or the even better stuff. I don't even, you know? Yeah. We'll also just stay tuned the next like two weeks when we're going to be teasing some more content that will be featured on patreon and it's gonna be good it's gonna be hot and you're gonna want you know to throw your money at us okay (laughs) but really just a nice way to get some more civic engagement some more sam Mm -hmm. and maddie content and to support the show and to support this mission of rebranding politics we love it but in honor, honestly, of rebranding politics, we also want to push out, again, our brand ambassador program because it has kicked off and we have met the most incredible young women. All are welcome, but we want some more signups. If you guys are interested in our brand ambassador program, check out the link in our bio. It has all the information on it and what it entails, but it's really just a community of 
those of us who listen to this show and want to be more civically engaged and informed and active. And we all just get to hang out with each other and talk politics or or not. Just it's a fun community. Forgetting the best parts, we are also offering some great networking opportunities. So if you're interested in internships, jobs, fellowships, whatever it may be in the political space, that's kind of in the career bubble, this would be a great opportunity for you to jump in, dive in, I don't know, gallop in, whatever like method, like pogo stick, like you find your method of transportation and I highly recommend hopping into the program. We have some really great virtual events, networking events that are coming up throughout the summer and fall and you definitely don't want to miss those. So link in the description. Link in the description. All right. Well, that is it for this week. Don't forget to subscribe. Please follow us. Please review us. If you haven't in a while, you should definitely send another another one through there. You should also tell your friends and family about us. And also hit subscribe on their phones and hit us with a review on their phones as well. And a follow on Instagram and TikTok and Twitter. But that is it for this week. Thank you for listening. And we'll be talking to you all next Wednesday. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.